Thanks for tuning in to this BGSM podcast. My name is Liam West, and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. On the line with me today is Majid Hassan. Majid is a partner in the clinical law team at Capstick's law firm. He has expertise in the medical legal aspects of sports medicine. And on this podcast, he's going to give us the top tips on how clinicians can protect themselves from litigation. So, welcome to the podcast, Majid. Thanks for inviting me, Liam. Delighted to be here today. Can you start by covering what are the key issues for physiotherapists and doctors from a medical legal perspective? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to say is that there are difficulties um, which are very peculiar to sports medicine and anyone working in that field. Um, You have athletes who are working with you who may not necessarily give you all the information you need to know. Um, as patients would do in a hospital setting sometimes. Um, You may have athletes for whom the medical records and notes are very limited, if they're there at all. Uh, Some may have come from abroad with a very limited set of notes, and you're trying to work um, on the basis of those. And um, there can also be an element of conflict, um, for want of a better word. There can be pressure put on you as a sports and exercise medicine um, clinician from those who have other interests within a club. Um, And having to try and balance that causes um, particular difficulties. And I think the point I want to talk about today are set against that background and understanding that background against which you're operating. Key issues. um, I suppose really there's one key issue I want to to look at um, to begin with. And the key issue at the moment, which is the focus in the medico-legal world, is around consent. Um, There have been changes in relation to the law of consent over a number of years. Um, I just want to mention very briefly a case that came out earlier this year called Montgomery. Um, This was a case brought by Mrs. Montgomery um, against her obstetrician. It was argued that the obstetrician had failed to to warn her about the risk of her baby being born with shoulder dystocia, and had she been warned of that, she would have opted for a cesarean section rather than natural delivery. The cesarean section would have reduced the risk of shoulder dystocia. Now, the important thing about this case is that the court effectively put in black and white um, how the thinking around consent has developed. Traditionally, from a legal perspective, we've worked around what many of your listenership will know as the Bolam principle. Um, Bolam said, this is what a responsible body of medical opinion would or would not do. Um, and the law and consent in the 70s was set around a case of Sidway, which again used Bolam, and it said, was it reasonable not to warn a patient uh, of a particular risk? And in dis- assessing that, they looked at Bolam and applied Bolam and said, would a responsible body of medical opinion warn of this risk or not? So it was very much based around what the doctors felt was reasonable rather than looking at it from a patient-centric point of view. Over the years, that principle has eroded with a variety of case law and Montgomery really changed that. And in Montgomery, the Supreme Court said, no, Mrs. Montgomery should have been told of the risks. It doesn't matter what the obstetrician thought was best for her. Patient autonomy prevails. She should have been allowed to decide what was important for her, and she should have been allowed to make that decision. So in moving um, to this, 
and really reiterating what has been said in case law and also with GMC guidance, with other guidance um, that's been published over the years, the courts have just said we are moving towards an informed consent approach and what the patient wants to know. And this really ties us in with um, the approach in many of the Commonwealth jurisdictions where it is about what does this patient want to know, what's important to the patient. And I think... Um, you know, it's certainly perceived as one of the more important judgments of recent years and something which clinicians um, need to be aware about. It's not just those who work in obstetrics who need to be aware of this case. Anyone, whether they're an ENT surgeon or a sports physician, um, needs to know the importance of consent and apply the principles of consent to say, well, for example, in sports medicine, I'm about to give this player a steroid injection. Do they know the pros and cons of it? Have I been through this course of treatment with them? Have I explained to them what the options are of not having treatment, what the alternative options are, etc.? So it's really working in conjunction with patients so they get a better understanding. And sports physicians, while on the one hand they may be perceived as clients, they are also really the same as um, patients when you're when you're treating them. Some of our listeners may have heard of the recent lawsuit this year that the former Tottenham Hotspurs player Radwan Hamid won against his former club. Could yeah. you take our listeners through this case briefly and then highlight any of the learning points? Of course, of course. So uh, the the case of Hamid against um, Tottenham Hotspur was an interesting case because it threw up an, a number of issues. The defendants in the case. Um, were not only Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, but the two club doctors, um, uh, Dr. Cowie and Dr. Curtin, and also um, a cardiologist who had seen the um, the, the, the young uh, player, Radwan Hamid. Um, and the issues centred around whose responsibility was it to follow up um, Radwan and what should have been done. In a nutshell, the background to the case was that he had been referred in accordance with the FA protocol um, for um, routine screening to identify whether he was at risk of various cardiac disorders, most common of which HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, he'd had an ECG in July 2005 that showed a slightly abnormal result, suggestive of underlying disease. Now, the cardiologist in this case, Dr. Mills, um, who bear in mind he'd only seen the scan he never saw the patient. He only saw the scan and was paid to, by the FA to review the scan. Um, he recommended a further scan and a clinical review. Um, now, unfortunately, he, that scan wasn't ever done. Um, the outcome was that Radwan had been continued to allow um, to play football. He went on a pre-season tour um, to Belgium and he collapsed on the side of the pitch due to his cardiac condition. Now, what had happened in the run-up to that is um, the cardiologist had confirmed to the club that on the basis of the images he'd seen, there were no features of HCM, but he did indicate that he was still worried about the ECG results and he thought there was a small risk of underlying heart disease. So in August um, of that year, after uh, a telephone conversation between the club physio and the cardiologist secretary, the club doctor recorded that the footballer was not at risk of developing um, HCM and that 
you know, the, the cardiologist, it was felt, was happy for him to continue to train and play. Now, what was lost in this conversation was the fact that actually Dr. Mills, the cardiologist, had recommended that a further review was necessary. That review wasn't done. Um, further queries were raised in September. The cardiologist wrote to the club saying because of the abnormal ECG, the footballer should be screened annually. And um, then in response to a query from the club, he also stated that it would be reasonable for the footballer to continue training and playing. It was in his evidence at court that he said he reached that decision because he felt it, he didn't want to end this young player's career. But there was an issue over what his initial findings had suggested, and that was that there should be a review. Now, the club doctors were found liable, um, and liability was also um, apportioned to Dr. Mills on the basis that he had failed to follow up um, his recommendations and his assessment, but the greater share of liability rested with the club. And the reason for that really came down to this assessment in um, of what happened in August 2005, and that was um, from a third-hand telephone message, i.e. between the cardiologist secretary and the um, club physio, the club doctor had drawn a conclusion that Radwan could be at no risk of an adverse cardiac event if he continued to train and play. And that was wrong. It was felt that no um, responsible uh, sports and exercise medicine physician could have come to that conclusion. Even though the cardiologist, Dr. Mills, had considered that um, the claimant did claimant Radwan did still bear a risk of an adverse cardiac event, um, which would be potentially fatal. So that was the important point. This risk was in the background. The cardiologist had concluded that there was this risk, and somehow the club had failed to really pick up on this. And the key issues that came out of it, um, and the key learning points, I suppose, was one, the failure to follow up by the cardiologist. There was a big debate. Should the cardiologist um, have been brought into this at all? How could he owe a duty of care to a patient that he had never seen? Well, the court felt he had reviewed the scans. He'd reviewed the scans, he'd reported on the scans, and he bore some responsibility in ensuring um, that it was followed up and um, the correct measures were, were taken. Um, but by far the greater degree of responsibility lay with the club, not only for their misinterpretation of what Dr. Mills, the cardiologist, had said, but really where the court were highly critical is of the system in place at Tottenham Hotspur um, in regard to note-keeping and in regard to a system for following up players who were referred under this FA protocol for further screening. And the court, were very, very, the court was very critical that a club such as Tottenham Hotspur, a multi-million pound business, um, could have such a shoddy approach to note-keeping and systems for following up their players who are, uh, you know, in the same way as a patient going into a hospital would expect to have their notes in good shape so that there is good continuity of care. Why should it be any different for a, for a young player at a football club? And that was, that was really um, one of the key, key issues that came out of it. So I think those were the, the, 
couple of key points from the case. One, the follow-up arrangements, making sure that um, there is appropriate communication between the various medical staff and also having a system in place in regard to note-keeping and making sure there is effective note-keeping um, for when this sort of situation arises. So moving on. Um, we'll stick with football. Chairmen and things often just say, oh, get the player to sign a waiver. So if a player does sign a waiver, does this afford the doctor or physio any protection at all? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. I've said before that that piece of paper probably um, isn't worth anything. It's really not worth the paper it's written on. You can't exclude liability for personal injury or, dam or, or death. So if you know, someone has signed that, I, in the court of law, it won't stand up. And when that player's family then say, well, we didn't know about that, we don't agree with that, um, you know, no one's really going to say, um, yes, that was all fine. Realistically, a court would, first of all, say, well, I'm afraid you can't exclude that liability. But also there's, a, there's an issue here over the position of the parties. Um, of course, a player, a young player in particular, would want to do everything possible. And as I said at the outset, it's very difficult when you're dealing with players who want to get onto the pitch and be in the first team. Um, they don't necessarily want to tell you everything. And where you have found something out through a test, they might be prepared at that stage to wave away their rights, to ignore medical advice that you're giving um, and do what's best for their careers. And the difficulty is, as you've pointed out, Liam, um, the club manager or the club board may well be happy to go along with that because they are the best centre-half or right-back or whatever position they play in, whatever sport they play in, that they currently have on their books and they want to get them on. But the club owes that player a duty of care. It would not be appropriate to say, um, we think we can put you onto the pitch, um, even though you have a condition which could potentially be life-threatening. And I think were it ever tested, a court would view that um, not, you know, in a very poor light. Okay. To bring the podcast to a close, um, what would you advise doctors or physios or those working in sports medicine should do to protect their position within sport? Okay. Um, I think two or three key things for those working in, in sports medicine. Firstly, to, to check with your club um, as to your own position, your own role. Are you an employee of the club? Are you expected to have your own cover. If you're an employee, they may well be covering you for any professional negligence. If they're not covering you, um, then you're effectively an independent contractor. And have you got enough professional indemnity of your own, I'm afraid? Um, that's uh, essential. Um, but that is around the issue of if a case does come up, but understanding your position is central. Now, how can you avoid ever having ever being in the position where you're needing to rely on that indemnity? Well, that's really effective risk management. It comes down to good communication with um, with the people you're working with, the players that you're working with, making sure, as I said at the beginning, you have an informed consent approach towards the treatment that you're providing them. They understand the risks of the treatment. They understand the options, etc. Um, and that you also, you're able to 
with their authority or with their knowledge share that information with people who need to know that information, whether that's at board level or whether that's with the managers and other um, others within the management team who are also part of that player's development and performance. So having that um, informed approach and making sure we, we tell players about everything um, because potentially um, a player could argue and you know, 10 years after their playing career is finished, well, hang on, no one ever told me of the risks of getting out onto the pitch with really badly injured knees like I had. Um, I was just given steroid injections. I didn't feel the pain at the time because of the injections, but now I'm crippled. I'm in a wheelchair. And you know, that's an argument that potentially could be run. It's a, an argument that has been run across the pond in America where San Francisco 49ers were successfully sued on that basis um, by one of their players um, who argued he wasn't ever warned of the dangers of playing with badly injured knees um, like he did. So I think it shows that we have gone towards this informed consent approach and really making players aware and making sure that... Um, if we think a player isn't fit enough to play, that that is documented somewhere. I know from speaking to people that these are often conversations that are had in corridors before players go out onto a pitch. Well, if the decision is taken to put someone out onto a pitch, contrary to medical advice, we just need to make sure as a clinician working in that environment that that advice has been documented clearly somewhere. So that should any issue arise subsequently, a year, five years, ten years down the line, there are notes of conversations that have been had of advice that has been given around what was done. And that sort of leads me into my final point, really, Liam, which is um, around note keeping. I'm afraid it's what I always say when I'm speaking with doctors. Clear, effective note keeping is the key. Um, judges it's said adopt the approach that well if it's not in the notes it wasn't said and that is true it's not impossible to defend a case with badly um, prepared notes but it does make it much much harder and the reason it makes it harder is that you're being asked to recall events from many years back which may not be very clear in your mind at all often the patient or the claimant or the professional footballer, whoever it is, the professional athlete may well say, well, no, I do remember these conversations and I definitely wasn't warned about that. If I had been warned, I would not have gone on and played. So I think the, the key take-home message from me as a medical defense lawyer, as someone who has to defend um, health professionals from a range of um, fields, is key, uh, good note-keeping is the key. Great, and I think some really important uh, messages there. So thanks for your time, Majid, um, on this call. Pleasure. It's been nice to be speaking to a lawyer but not being too worried about it, actually. <laughs> so, you've been listening to a BGSM podcast on the medical legal aspects of sports medicine. If you'd like to listen to more BGSM podcasts, you can download our app where you'll be able to read our blogs and access all the latest articles and material. You can also follow the BGSM on Twitter using the handle at BGSM underscore BMJ, on Facebook or Google+. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a physically active day.